KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. We get support from Ben Franklin Crafts, locally owned and offering the beauty and color of fall for arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, and knitting. Ben Franklin Crafts is on Sutton Way, Grass Valley, online at benfranklin-crafts.com. And Hospice of the Foothills, Western Nevada County's nonprofit hospice, providing patient and family support, advanced care planning, and grief support since 1979. More information at hospiceofthefoothills.org. Up ahead on tonight's newscast, President Biden visits El Dorado County, and PG&E is in the hot seat again. Then, Paul Emery and hydrogeologist Steve Baker discuss ideas that could help with climate change in the future. We close with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. President Joe Biden was in Northern California yesterday afternoon to see for himself the damage caused by wildfire in El Dorado County. And we just surveyed some of the damage of the Calder Fire here in California which in less than a month has wiped out for 200,000 acres and 1,000 structures. Homes, precious memories destroyed, air quality degraded, local economy stopped in its tracks, and nearly 200 people in the area forced to live in shelters. Speaking from an airplane hangar at Mather Airport in Sacramento, the president pointed out that climate change is making things worse. We know that decades of forest management decisions have created hazardous conditions across the western forest. But we can't ignore the reality that these wildfires are being supercharged by climate change. It isn't about red or blue states. It's about fires, just fires. The president also spent part of yesterday campaigning for fellow Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom ahead of the recall election taking place today. A federal judge wants PG&E to explain why it took several hours to shut off electricity to a power line with blown fuses at a site where the Dixie fire ignited. That delay may have caused the now nearly million-acre blaze. KQED's Alex Emsley reports. Judge William also pressed a PG&E worker during over two hours of testimony Monday, asking why he didn't act quickly to remotely deactivate the line. The so-called trouble man, whose identity is concealed out of concerns for his safety, said he couldn't tell a tree had fallen into the power line until he doubled back to reach a set of blown fuses, a journey that took him about four hours on the remote country road near the Butte and Plumas County border. The judge is ordering PG&E to explain why no one cut power to what he said was the utility's 11th most dangerous line for starting a wildfire. The company must produce by Friday the names of anyone involved in events leading up to the fire. And the judge says he may order more PG&E employees to testify. For the California Report, I'm Alex Emsley in San Francisco. A fire called the KNP Complex continues to burn in Sequoia National Park and as of this morning has burned more than 3,000 acres with no containment by firefighters. The complex is made up of the Colony and Paradise fires, which were started by lightning strikes late last week. They're burning on steep terrain in areas with dense vegetation and officials anticipate they'll continue to grow. Mark Ruggiero is Fire Information Officer for Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. Weather conditions are normal for this time of year, so the, the fires are well established in their current locations, and uh, 
we we think you know that it's going to take a while to uh, suppress these fires. On Monday, the San Joaquin Valley Air District issued an air advisory for Fresno, Kings, and Tulare counties, as well as the valley portion of Kern County, because of the smoke coming from the KNP complex and the Windy Fire, which ignited on the Tule River Indian Reservation and has burned nearly 1,300 acres with no containment. It's now crossed into Sequoia National Park. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. SFMOMA, presenting the world premiere of Joan Mitchell, a stunning retrospective of over 80 works by the trailblazing painter who made art on her own terms. Learn more at sfmoma.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Thousands of Los Angeles Police Department employees are planning to seek either a religious or a medical exemption to avoid a requirement that city employees be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by October 5th. According to preliminary data obtained by the LA Times, almost 3,000 of the department's more than 12,000 employees have already indicated they plan to seek exemptions, with a majority looking to be approved for a religious exemption. This comes on the heels of a federal lawsuit that's been filed by by six members of the department challenging the vaccination mandate. The group claims it violates their constitutional rights to privacy and due process. LAPD's vaccination rate has lagged behind the general population in L.A. for months. Meanwhile, the sheriff in Riverside County, Chad Bianco, said he will not enforce any type of vaccination mandate on sheriff's employees. He says these decisions are a governmental intrusion on people's health care decisions and tyrannical, even though the U.S. has a long history of vaccination mandates. Well, garment workers in California are one step closer to securing hourly wages and pay theft protections thanks to a bill that's waiting to be signed by the governor. With more, here's KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb. California's minimum wage sits at $14 an hour right now. But for many garment workers in the state, especially in the Los Angeles area, their actual wages are often half of that. That's according to a study by the UCLA Labor Center from a few years ago, and also bolstered by personal accounts by workers. Instead of offering an hourly wage, many manufacturers currently pay their fabric sewers and their cutters per piece of clothing, for example. This state bill would change that by mandating hourly wages. It would also upgrade a more than 20-year-old law that was meant to protect workers against wage theft by holding both manufacturers and fashion brands responsible for wage complaints. Now, no state has more garment workers than California. Proponents of this bill hope it will spark similar efforts in other parts of the U.S. There are some opponents, however, including the California Chamber of Commerce, which put the bill on its, quote, job killer list, saying it would drive large manufacturers out of California. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. Finally this morning, a design blogger and e-commerce entrepreneur with 5 million followers on Pinterest, who says she helped launch the social media site, is suing the company's co-founders. KQED's Rachel Myro has more from our Silicon Valley desk. 
Plaintiff Christine Martinez of Oakland argues she contributed core organizing concepts, like the platform's boards and the phrase pin it, that she helped persuade top design and lifestyle bloggers to use Pinterest and promote it, that she cultivated ties between the design world and Pinterest co-founders Ben Silberman and Paul Schiara. Martinez was never formally employed by Pinterest and had no contract, but the lawsuit claims the men verbally agreed to compensate her, an implied contract, which they breached after the company went public in 2019. No comment yet from Pinterest. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, September 14th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. In local news, Nevada County reported just one confirmed COVID-19 case today. 671 cases remain active, 17 of which are hospitalized. The city of Grass Valley announced today that Idaho-Maryland Road between Sutton Avenue and Brunswick Road will be closed for the South Yuba River Citizens League River Cleanup. That's this Saturday, September 18th, from 8.45 a.m. to 1 p.m. And now for your regional weather and air quality forecasts. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly clear with a low around 63 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny with a high near 87. Tomorrow's air quality index, AQI, will be good at 39. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight widespread haze, otherwise mostly clear, with a low around 45. Tomorrow, expect widespread haze before 2 p.m., then sunny, with a high near 79. Tomorrow's AQI will be 35. Good. And finally, for Sacramento and Woodland, tonight mostly clear, with a low around 59. Tomorrow, sunny again, with a high near 89. The AQI for the valley tomorrow will be good at 30. Ever wonder if there's anything we can do to ease the sting of drought? In this week's Water News, Paul Emery and hydrogeologist Steve Baker discuss some of the ideas that could help California deal with climate change in the coming future. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by clear water and filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Steve, um, welcome back to KVMR. Always great to be here. Steve, the biggest water news today is the surprise rainy night that we experienced just a few days ago. How has that changed our circumstances? Well, you know, our rain has definitely given us a reprieve from wildfires, right? Our forests, they're, they're still very dry, but that added rain and the increased humidity in the air is really helping to reduce existing fires, like our Dixie fire, the Caldor fires. Now, along with the surprise rain, of course, was all that thunder and lightning, right? But again, we got lucky. There were over 1,100 cloud-to-ground lightning strikes in California because of that storm. And that happened just between last Thursday evening and Friday morning. But there were only 17 ignitions. So we were able to handle that comfortably. So thank, thank you very much, Cal Fire and everybody else who's on these things. We still need to exercise extreme caution. That's, that's a given. But we can be a whole lot more confident. I, I'm, I'm feeling so much better already. We even have a chance of rain 
this coming weekend. So cross your fingers. Steve, living in California during the last year is a constant reminder that rain doesn't show up in the right volumes at the right time and in the right place. It doesn't show up often enough to satisfy our communities and surrounding environment. Mm-hmm. Are there ways to supplement Mother Nature's ability to bring us water? You know, there are some very big picture ideas out there right now. People are are seeing the devastation that just happened in Tennessee and New York and New Jersey, all that flooding from Hurricane Ida. And then they're also at the same time seeing the extreme heat that we're dealing with out in the West and how that fuels droughts and, and fires, especially, our again, our Dixie and Calder fires. There are two studies that have come out in California. And the first one came out in 2018. And they were talking about somehow creating a, a conveyance system that would move floodwaters in California to areas where you could groundwater recharge that water in the Central Valley and, and other places. And this could seriously help our farmers in natural environments by replenishing those aquifers that are now emptying out. So that, that came out in 2018. There's been a lot of work done in those particular uh, areas. Now, the other study was to use recharged waters for a second purpose, all right? I'm talking about reducing risk of future disasters outside of drought. So we're talking about fortifying our water supplies in wetlands areas and keeping our suburban areas and other regions flush with water because that will lessen the fire danger and reduce uh, the flooding in our cities by building green roofs, you know, doing, creating underground stormwater basins, you know, permeable pavements, uh, bioretention facilities, things like that. This approach would even put CO2 into the ground rather than leave it in, in our atmosphere, and it would cool down the heated surfaces. So, you know, granted, it would take a level of collaboration, but, I mean, a, a level that's far greater than what we have now, but this is doable, and I, I really think uh, we need to move forward on something like this. Do you think salt water will ever be an alternative water backup plan? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, water's precious in whatever form that we find it. The uh, recently, and another interesting item I, I found is uh, it's, it's, it came out of the oil fields in the Central Valley. They are looking at using oil field wastewater. Now, that's saline water, okay, salty water. And they want to mix that with the very limited water that they have because the offers are going dry, right? And, and then apply it to, to the fields. And initially, when I read that, I thought, you know, that's awfully scary because I'm concerned about the water quality here coming out of the oil fields. Are you kidding me? Uh, but there was a five-year extensive study that just came out in April of this year. And they were looking at that in answering that question. And they didn't find any evidence that human health would be jeopardized by using that water, if it's treated, uh, for watering tree nuts and citrus and berries and some of the other uses. So as in my view, as long as the research is really robust and peer-reviewed and transparent with no emissions, uh, you know, we may be onto something here because all water does have value. Steve, the uh, things we've been talking about today sound like good climate change <laughs> solutions. You know, build more adaptability into our communities. I wish we could talk to people directly on this. You know, we can, Paul. Uh, the American Institute of Professional Geologists and, and Operation Unite, which is a, an initiative that I've created, 
We're sponsoring a climate change national conference in Sacramento next month. We're going to have everybody in the same room. This is an in-person conference where uh, people will be, the public's being invited. It's not just members of this organization. There'll even be many workshops. And I know we have a lot of advocacy groups here in Nevada County. Uh, we will have the authors of a book that was written on the environmental considerations of for well fracking, what you need to ask and look for. Okay, the authors are going to be there. Mini workshop, uh, drones, how to use drones on these scientific studies. PFAS is the emerging contaminants and developing wildfire plans. There'll be many courses on that. But really, the thing I'm most excited about is a one-of-a-kind roundtable panel discussion. This is great. It'll be on Monday the 25th of October of next month. We put together uh, 12 panelists, okay? Their mission is to have a discussion on what is it that California is doing to prepare for 2040 and 50, and then let's, let's create a vision for what 2100 will be like. What, what do we want it to be like? And we have handpicked everybody. This is a high-level group of panelists, including, you know, Edward Randolph from the California Public Utilities Commission. He's he's deputy director over there. We've got California OES, Operation Emergency Services, Lori uh, from there. We have Joe Del Bosque, uh, two tours uh, as water commissioner, a California water commissioner. He's on the representing agriculture. We have land planning. Eric uh, from uh, he program manager at the governor's office. We have a lot of really high end people. Mike Anderson, climatologist. They will be there discussing what we're doing. And we want California leaders to be present in the audience to talk with one another because everybody needs to leave this roundtable and know exactly uh, what direction they want to move with their own communities to prepare for 2040 and 50. The, the conditions that we will be experiencing in those years, 20 to 30 years from now, will be different than what we're experiencing now. A little more intense. And we need to be prepared for that. So that is what this roundtable is about. Once again, Steve, how can people find out more information about it? The easiest way is just to go to www.aipg.org and just read up on it and register. Register soon because it's in person. You know we have COVID. They're, being, they're COVID compliant, but it is in person, so it's going to be limited. So if you're really interested in it, go ahead and sign up now and register. Monday's the big day, although Monday and Tuesday we have technical sessions. There are a lot of other things, too. Thank you, Steve. Oh, you're welcome. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. Did you know that October is historically the worst month for stock performance? Mark Cunaberti brings us up to speed in this week's Money Matters Commentary. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Many investors, if asked what month is historically the worst for stock performance, would answer October. Truth be told, September takes the prize for the month that produces the most stock losses. That said, there have been many horrible stock events that did occur in October. The bank panic of 1907, the stock market crash of 1929, you remember that one, and Black Monday 1987. 
all occurred during the Halloween month. Because the 1929 and 1987 crashes were horrific in speed and scope and therefore have been covered extensively in the history books, it is not surprising October is thought to manifest ghosts and goblins in the stock market and probably your portfolio as well. Although stocks are down more often than up in September, the differences are actually very slight. The S&P markets have scored a positive just 45% of the time since 1945. Interestingly enough, February is the only other month with an average negative stock performance. Is there something about the economy earlier in the year that causes the markets to pull back in the fall? Or is there something going on in the investing public's mind in the fall, specifically during September? Could it be something as silly as superstitious investors correlating an upcoming Halloween to negative stock performance the month before? Or is it as simple as nervous traders returning from a summer vacation hitting more sell than buy buttons for whatever the reason? Cyclical reasons aside, since the difference between September and other months is so nominal. Perhaps it's just an odd coincidence September just happens to be the worst month for stocks. In my opinion, although historical patterns should not be ignored entirely, the state of the economy, the political environment, and other macroeconomic events should take precedent over everything else when looking for successful stock prognostications. As investors enter into September 2021, there are reasons to be bullish and there are reasons to be bearish. Not much help there, I know, but this analyst holds the opinion that this September fear should be slightly elevated over elation, which means at this time, more portfolio trepidation occupies my mind than is normal. My portfolio's positioning currently reflects this view. The bullish reasons are many. The Fed is continually printing massive amounts of cash and handing it out willy-nilly to various banking entities of the world. And yes, they do hand out cash to foreign money conduits as well. Congress is also continuing its various stimulus programs and cash payments, encompassing trillions of dollars for both infrastructure and individual enhancement. Stimulus and bailout payments of $6 trillion and counting is a lot of money. Add that to the trillions in monetary payments going to the various money centers of the world, and it makes for many a reason for stocks to continue their ascent. The reopening of the economy, albeit stalled by the Delta variant, continues to see the consumer exhibit a relentless propensity to spend money. Perhaps they're making up for lost time during the shut-ins and shutdowns. Considering all these events, yes, there are a few reasons to be bullish. However, my trepidation comes from a variety of negative observations. The Dow has risen almost non-stop since March of 2020 and is nearing a double considering the state of the economy and the resurgence of Delta variant. It's beginning to look like investors are ignoring the state of the real economy. Buying euphoria also appears rampant, and the valuations are looking severely overstretched, at least to me. The POTUS situation seems to be escalating with the Afghanistan situation, and questions surrounding competency continue to swirl. The Federal Reserve has printed money to the cows come home, and at some point will have to cease their money creation schemes due to rising inflation concerns. Although no one can predict market movements at any time, I have initiated trade stops on almost all portfolio positions. Trailing stops or sell orders entered ahead of time and become market sell orders if a predetermined lower price is hit. They may not protect against losses, however, but they may assist in unloading positions if markets fall. In conclusion, it's safe to say markets will correct at some point. How investors deal with that correction and its damage to portfolio balances is the million-dollar question if investors do anything at all. That does it for today's Money Matters. Remember, past performances not guarantee future results. The opinions contained here are my opinions only. 
should not be construed as investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any securities and may not represent the opinion of this radio station and staff, management, or underwriters. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and my Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name is Mark Cunningham. That wraps up our newscast for this Tuesday, September 14th. We get support from the Nevada County Registrar of Voters. Today is Election Day. Ballots can be returned to official drop boxes, voting centers, or the elections office until 8 p.m. More information? MyNevadaCounty.com slash elections. And Milkman Toner Company providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners. Carrying environmentally safe, remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support. Serving Northern California counties, also San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com Next, we bring you Food Sleuth with host and registered dietitian Melinda Hemmelgarn. This week, Melinda interviews Sarah Sorcher, Deputy Director of Regulatory Affairs for the Center for Science in the Public Interest. They discuss poppies, unwashed poppy seeds, and the dangers of poppy seed tea. Then, at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. My name is Claudio Mendonça. Thanks very much for listening and for supporting your independent community radio station. Have a good evening, everyone. I'll see you on Thursday.